the root of it all is follow your interests, right? We spend so much of our lives in our jobs. If you don't enjoy the job, the vocation day to day, you probably should pivot into something else. In each of my career transitions, it started with, hey, I'm really interested in that. And that got me passionate about it, got me exploring that space, got me connect, reconnecting with people that I knew who were in those sectors to, to make that transition. It took me many years to really recognize this about my personality, but I really enjoy climbing a learning curve, if that makes sense. You know, I think that once I become sort of an expert in something, I get a little bored. I really like early stage stuff and kind of figuring it out and the possibility that comes with <laughs> naivety sometimes uh, when you enter a new space to not be intimidated by, you know, oh gosh, I don't know anything about this sector. I mean, this was the same for getting into being an author. What did I know about being an author? I knew nothing about it, uh, but I really enjoyed that process of learning about it, researching it, talking to other authors, publishers, agents, et cetera, figuring out the path that they took and I figured it out. That to me is a lot of fun too. And I think if you don't enjoy the little bit of fear and anxiety that comes with that transition, it's going to be a stressful one. Welcome back to establishing your empire. Today, I am thrilled to have Mike Trigg on the show. He's an experienced Silicon Valley executive, entrepreneur, and author with a remarkable career spanning over 25 years. Throughout his impressive journey, Mike has been a founder, executive, and investor in dozens of venture-funded technology startups. In addition to his successful career, Mike has also been a valuable contributor to some of the most renowned tech publications such as TechCrunch, entrepreneur and fast company. But that's not all. Mike has recently published his first novel, Bitflip, a corporate thriller that offers readers an authentic insider's view of the corrupting influences of greed, entitlement, and vanity in technology startups. In this episode, we'll dive deep into Mike's extensive experience in the tech industry, his insights on entrepreneurship and the inspiration behind his new book. So without further ado, Please join me in welcoming Mike Trigg to the show. You're listening to the Establishing Your Empire show, a podcast that inspires entrepreneurs, creatives, and future business owners to pursue their passions, grow their organizations, and build their empire. My name is Darren Herman, and creatively, I'm best known for my photography. But business-wise, my claim to fame is growing a company from 15K per month in online sales to breaking the $1 million a month barrier. And I'm sitting down with interesting people to talk about their process, the lessons they've learned, and how they have established their empires. All right, I got Mike Trigg here on the Establishing Your Empire podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm real excited about this conversation. I think we're going to go into all about Silicon Valley. We're going to go to about how to become an author and why to become an author and probably a deep dive into the super interesting twists and terms and trials and tribulations of his background. So thanks for joining me. Of course. Thanks for having me, Darren. Why don't we start off with a little bit of background about yourself so everybody can kind of figure out what this, where this conversation is going to go. Yeah, of course. Uh, well, I'm a Midwesterner at heart. I grew up in Wisconsin. Uh, for most of my, you know, teenage years, um, went to undergrad at Northwestern University, went out to Washington, D.C. as a political aide, um, uh, working on Capitol Hill, and then kind of got the technology bug. I ended up 
you know, hearing about this thing called the information superhighway, as we called it back in the mid nineties, um, worked for MCI out in Washington, DC, and then, you know, had to get to Silicon Valley. So moved to California, um, went to business school at UC Berkeley, uh, and pursued a career in tech. You know, that was the thing. This was during the dot-com boom. Uh, 98 was when I graduated from, uh, Berkeley and I've done kind of it all hardware, software, big company, small company. I've been a founder. I've been a co-founder. I've had exits. I've had failures, <laughs> you know, in other words, a pretty typical Silicon Valley, uh, career. Uh, so I did that for about 25 years and was working on kind of incubating another startup idea. Uh, but I had this idea to write a novel. I, I really had been inspired to do that for a long time. Finally, was sort of finding some time to get some thoughts down. Um, and then COVID happened. So we had to pivot the startup um, and ultimately weren't able to raise money. So we ended up shutting that down. But that, for me, had a silver lining in that I sort of looked around and I thought, hey, if I'm ever going to get this novel published and I'm ever going to you know, really go for it, uh, now's the time. You know, I'm not walking away from any income. I'm already <laughs> sequestered at home. Um, you know, there's no downside to this. So I jumped in with two feet, uh, you know, now coming on on two years ago. Uh, and my first novel, uh, Bitflip, uh, came out in August. So that's been, that's the summary. I love it. And I think we're going to go really deep into the the book here in a bit. bit. But let's, let's take us back because I always kind of like to go through the journey a little bit. And you have a very interesting one. Yeah. So the dot-com boom, you know, and now I think a lot of people would say maybe it feels a little bit like that, maybe not as drastic as that was, but um, well, actually, let's go back even further. So you were you were in government, you know, you're working yeah. for a senator in D.C. Yeah. I know you, you just said that you heard about this information superhighway, but what actually made you leave? That's a whole, that's like a, a right turn in your career, right? It was a combination of factors. There was a push and a pull to it. You know, the, the, the push was, the bloom was sort of off the rose for me with politics. I, I thought that was maybe what I wanted to do. Um, I sort of have the unusual background of having worked for both a Republican and a Democrat. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I ended up in a position as a press secretary. Uh, I like to say that I considered a career in writing after undergrad, but realized I couldn't make money doing that. <laughs> and so I pursued a lot of writing adjacent things and public relations and press uh, relations was sort of fun for me. It was a chance to write press releases and speeches and things of that nature. Um, and, you know, working on Capitol Hill in the uh, mid nineties during the Clinton administration, and then, you know, the whole Newt Gingrich con contract with America, I just, I just sort of felt like it was already then felt very polarized, not very productive. Um, I just wasn't sure. I felt like the private sector would be a better fit for, for my interests and talents. And so, um, yeah, you know, Al Gore back then, you know, and other policy wonk type people called it the information superhighway. That was sort of the term of art for this thing that then became the internet. And, you know, I just was fascinated by it. I remember when the Netscape browser came out, that for me, like a lot of people, was the moment where it really clicked. It was like, okay, you're, we're going to be able to get information on our screens from anywhere at any time. And that just struck me as sort of a once in a lifetime technology transformation, which obviously it's proven to be. So, so, you know, my, my thought process was, 
my uh, newlywed, then newlywed wife and I were living in Washington, D.C. There aren't a lot of tech companies in D.C. AOL and MCI were the two. MCI, you know, most people don't even know about it anymore. It kind of died an ignominious death with the merger with WorldCom and one of the biggest financial frauds of all time. Uh, but at the time, it was a huge company. There were, I think we had 30,000 employees, 15 billion of revenue. Um, you know, we were really pioneering a lot of uh, new technologies. And uh, it was a great place for me to kind of cut my teeth and get familiar with the tech industry. You went, you went to UC Berkeley, correct? And yeah. Like, mm -hmm. how did you actually land your first uh, job afterwards? Is there any story there? Yeah. Uh, you know, my, I didn't have an engineering background, right? So I, I wasn't a technical person, although I, I was a technophile. I liked using technology, gadgets and stuff. Um, so my feeling was I, I wanted to kind of, you know, learn the ropes at a bigger company. So uh, during business school, I ended up interning at another now gone, but at the time, a huge company, 3Com, which invented Ethernet protocol, which became the backbone of the internet, um, and was a product manager there after graduating. Um, great role. You know, it really did, you know, as a product manager in that function, you, in effect, are sort of a little GM or CEO of your little business unit um, and touch everything from product development, R&D through on to, you know, marketing and sales. Um, so really enjoyed that. The company ended up shutting down that entire division. And it was sort of a sign of things to come with 3Com. The, the business ended up sort of floundering and, and doesn't exist anymore, really. Um, but for me, that was a great opportunity. It kind of hit the reset button. I feel like I had gotten the skills that I wanted to get out of 3Com anyway at that point. And I ended up at a company in 1999 called Octane Software, which was a chance for me to shift from the hardware side to the software side. Uh, it was enterprise software. So uh, it's kind of a customer relationship management software for businesses. Think Salesforce, basically. It was kind of Salesforce before Salesforce. Um, and that was amazing. We, we had a great run. Uh, the company ended up getting acquired for you know, north of $3 billion, which at the time was a huge sum. Today, you know that that make you just yet just another unicorn. Yeah, it's like um, page five of the news nowadays. Right, exactly. That would barely barely make the make the headline, um, but it was um, you know fortuitous because it was right around the peak of the bubble. Um, things ended up bursting. Uh, that company probably wouldn't have made it if it hadn't sold when it did. Uh, we were acquired by a public company called Epiphany, uh, which was kind of marketing analytics software, and that was a great. You know, harbor for the storm for me. It it was a solid enough company that we weathered through the the bust, and um, you know, I kind of advanced through the the levels of that company to vice president role, um, and really enjoyed it. You know, I, I, I there I think everybody has companies in their career that they kind of you know they're the they're sort of the root company. I mean, a lot of my subsequent uh, jobs and career moves can be explained back to that time at Epiphany and Octane and the great friends and, you know, lifelong colleagues that I made during that time. So I want to unpack a couple things there because one of the things, a lot of people, they're in a career and they, they, they want to get in tech. It seems really cool. And one of the, I always sit there and say, go try and be a project manager somewhere. And I'm love yeah. that you started your career 20 years ago, whatever in tech, it however long it was. And in the same type of thing there, 
And you can even nowadays, you can get like a certificate from Google, which I'm sure actually carries a lot of weight in project management for, I think, almost no money. But anyway, because you get to, you get to interact with so many different people and touch so many different, you know, get really knee deep into one area or multiple areas that I, I think it's, um, I think it's just one of the easiest ways to get in. It might not be the easiest job. It's a lot of yeah. organizational work there, but look at, you know, um, it can give you a lot of confidence and experience, I think. Well, that discipline really dates back to Hewlett Packard. You know, the HP way was to create product managers and empower those product managers with a lot of, you know, uh, power and, and autonomy within the organization to bring their product to market in kind of a, a holistic way where, you know, you weren't just the engineering person, you were really a kind of a junior business unit manager. And, you know, the discipline is an interesting one. It's, it's where I've spent most of my career. And there are three vocations, all titled, you know, variants of P and M. There's project manage, manager, product manager, and product marketing. And the lines between those things can kind of blur. Sometimes, you know, somebody will have one of those titles, but effectively all three functions, um, and, you know, the, the distinctions more or less are project managers tend to be the more operationally focused people. They're making sure the trains are running on time. They're managing the Gantt diagrams, et cetera, to just coordinate the logistics of a complicated, uh, you know, product launch. The product manager tends to be more that uh, straddling that business and technical side. They often have a technical background and they'll be working closely with the engineers on the R&D, but also then closely with the kind of more sales and marketing front office folks to get the product launched and into the channel or wherever, however you're selling it. And then the product marketing person, you know, tends to be more kind of outbound focused. Their job tends to be more once the product is built to be that, you know, advocate for it, go out and pitch it and publicize it and uh, run advertising campaigns, whatever it might be, hit a number frequently. Um, so those roles, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of my career, you know, it, it, I think what makes any of those roles such a great function is you're herding cats basically, right? I think you're in effect doing what is the most difficult for any executive, any founder, any product person is getting, you know, a, a number of different people with widely different skills and expertise to kind of row the boat the same direction. And, uh, you know, that it's hard to define that skill, but it's a critical one for any kind of entrepreneurial success. Well, I think they're all three of those roles are a great foundation for any entrepreneur. If you want to do like a light version first, right? Because yeah. you have to get so much done. And by the way, typically 98% done is zero. So, right. And a project no. <laughs> All three of those roles would tell you that too. Like if you don't, if you actually don't ship it, it's it's still zero. And um, yep. I think just learning. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, one of the keys to success is actually just to get it out, even if it's not perfect. But because yep. a lot of times you want to keep refining it, and then it never, it never, never sees the light of day, or it's too late. Um, well, so and any go, go, go any ahead. dissonance between what you build and how you sell it. Too, you know, that's where projects fit, you know, products fail. Um, you know, you think about the, the biggest smash hits of our, of the, of this last 20, 30 years, you know, they were all ones where the tech was right and the market 
you know, go to market was right. And, and that's why I think that function is so important because that's really the, the connective tissue between engineering and, and go to market. Well, and talk, talk about smash hits, you know, obviously Facebook is one of the, the biggest ones, but so I think that's a good segue going into your social network kind of background yeah. of, of joining high five. One, one, I would love to know why, like how did, how did that happen? Like, because you were, um, if we go back to the background, I jumped over a little bit, but you know, you're kind of in hardware, software, you did a little bit of analytics for a minute, but then social media or second social yeah. network, I guess. But, um, that seems quite of a different pivot, but maybe it's not, uh, is yeah, there a story it's there? not, it, it, it does look like a big pivot on paper, but it was a pretty easy segue in reality. The, the, um, you know, first step was to move to a company called Spoke Software, which was, you know, kind of adjacent to LinkedIn. I mean, it was similar notion of let's do prof a professional social network. Let's connect you to people. Sort of the core idea there was to gear it towards sales professionals to help them, you know, identify contacts and relationships they might have into businesses that they were trying to sell to. Um, Spoke, believe it or not, is still around, but I ended up there after Epiphany, thanks to the founder and CEO of Octane, who was a venture investor in that company, uh, a good, good, remains a good friend till today, uh, brought me over a guy named Tim Galeri um, and uh, did that for a few years. Uh, and then I, I felt like the consumer side might be more interesting. You know, Facebook and MySpace were just kind of getting going. Um, and again, an epiphany connection, uh, a woman named Karen Richardson, who uh, was the CEO of epiphany for a period of time. And somebody I kept in close touch with a mentor to me professionally also was on the board of high five. So she sought me out and, um, ended up taking on the head of marketing role at high five, which, you know, is not very well known here in the U S they're kind of uh, breakout feature, uh, that the founders developed was a crowdsourced translation ability. So users could translate the strings of the product into different languages. And the effect of that was it sort of took off the way social networking products were doing at the time in sort of, you know, I don't want to say obscure languages. They're not obscure if you're from Thailand, but like languages that mo that Facebook and MySpace weren't translating to yet. And so it took off and we were, you know, the number one or number two website in, you know, Portugal and Thailand and, you know, Colombia and a lot of regions that were, um, you know, where, where the product had been localized and translated. And so, um, it, the high five became one of the biggest social networking, one of the biggest websites period in the world. I think at the time it was a top 20 website in the world in terms of page views. Um, and, but, you know, unfortunately the, the, uh, it got run over along with, you know, MySpace, Bebo, Orkut, you know, a long list of also rands in the social networking space. Uh, Facebook kind of went out on the consumer side, you know, and then has had its own challenges with Instagram and WhatsApp and uh, Snapchat and TikTok and everything else. But uh, and then on the professional side, really LinkedIn became the you know de facto standard worldwide for professional social networking. So. Yeah, it was an interesting time to be in that market. It really taught me a lot about, you know, cons the consumer product side of the internet and, you know, kind of the, the magic potion of a lot of those businesses was their virality, you know, that, that they spread 
very organically with a, a, a you know in hindsight a minimal amount of sales and marketing um they they took off because people used it and they shared it with their friends and those people learned about it and then used it themselves and we've seen many other companies like the ones i mentioned kind of go through that similar you know tornado of growth um that that is pretty unique to consumer products and you know you mentioned kind of uh in that that you you knew a couple people so you had some relationships to kind of find that spot maybe talk to us about the art of pivoting in your career it doesn't have to be so strong as a pivot as maybe just your next yeah. gig or your next job like um, obviously relationships are, are big. Is there anything else that you've found to be valuable to make you move from one spot to the next? Well, the root of it all is follow your interests, right? I mean, I think that it's critical to be, you know, we spend so much of our lives in our jobs. If you're not, if that, if you don't enjoy the job, the vocation day to day, you know, you probably should pivot into something else. And and so for me, that's where it kind of started was, you know, I, I kind of had this thesis initially with hardware of like, hey, if it's a gold rush, I want to be selling the picks and shovels, not prospecting for gold. So I'm going to be on the the infrastructure side, the hardware side. And then I was like, well, I don't know, that doesn't really activate me. There's nothing you can really see and interact with. So I think I want to be on the software side. Well, you know, the logical step was into enterprise software versus consumer. And once I got into enterprise software, I sort of looked at it and I thought, gosh, I think I want to really maybe pursue, um, you know, the, the consumer side, like that's more tangible and it really requires more marketing, which is really kind of my skill set. Um, and so I, I think in each of my career transitions, it started with, Hey, I'm really interested in that. And that got me passionate about it got me exploring that space, got me connect, reconnecting with people that I knew who were in those sectors to, to make that transition. Um, I think I also always, you know, I, I've, it took me many years to really recognize this about my personality, but I really enjoy climbing a learning curve, if that makes sense. You know, I think that once I become sort of an expert in something, I get a little bored, to be totally honest. I, I really like early stage stuff and Kind of figuring it out and the 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 possibility that comes with <laughs> naivety sometimes uh, when you enter a new space and so I think that's pretty important too is to sort of be you know uh, to not be intimidated by you know oh gosh I don't know anything about this sector I mean this was the same for getting into being an author what did I know about being an author I knew nothing about it. Uh, but I really enjoyed that process of learning about it, researching it, talking to other authors, publishers, agents, et cetera, figuring out the path that they took. Um, and, you know, and I figured it out. So, so that to me is a lot of fun too. And I think if you don't enjoy the, the, the little bit of fear and anxiety that comes with that transition, it's going to be a stressful one. And I think a lot of people get stuck in that and myself included sometimes of, you know, staying too long. Um, has there any, been any points in your career that you disliked what you did? And then it, was it a time-based thing where you're like, okay, I spent too much time on this. There's so many days that you hate it. Or was there a way, or, or did it just naturally fizzle out? Because I think my root of the question is, I think a lot of people, especially my type of listeners, are those want to want to be entrepreneurs or wanted to take that next step, but sometimes need that little shove off the ledge. Yeah. So I just, if there's anything to unpack there. I think, you know, 
I tend to be a pretty open and honest communicator and, and transparent about my thoughts and feelings about things. And if you're not, or if that doesn't come naturally to you, I think that's when you can maybe overstay your own, you know, desired time at something, right? Because you are reluctant to express concerns or dissatisfactions or whatever it might be. Um, for me, you know, there, there have been certainly companies, there was a company that I co-founded um, that eventually got sold to Cisco after I left um, that, you know, it just wasn't a good fit for me. I got intrigued. I had technical co-founders. Um, they were brilliant. They had invented a really cool, innovative new product, but, but it, it wasn't really a good Venn diagram overlap with what I was interested in. It was more of an infrastructure kind of product. And, you know, I was honest with them and with the investors. It was like, I, I don't know that this is sort of what I'm passionate about. Um, and that was healthy in the long run. You know, it kind of catalyzed a set of changes. We ended up bringing in a new CEO. Uh, you know, that kind of gave me the pathway to, you know, exit without burning any bridges at the, with my investors or my co-founders. Um, so I think that's the root of it. Sometimes just having those conversations too can help you real, you know, clarify your own thinking and, and, you know, what really isn't sitting right with me about this company? Is it the technology? Is it the marketplace? Is it my, my coworkers? You know, there certainly can be times where you're just not clicking with the people you're working with, and that can be a, a source of dissatisfaction with the job. So, you know, I think having those conversations just opens things up, clarifies your own thinking and helps you develop the courage of the conviction to make whatever career move you need to make. Is that conversations with yourself? You're talking about open communicator. Is that, is that, or do you have like a partner that you do, you bounce it off? Cause I think a lot of people could use that help. I mean, do you have coach like any, any uh, routines or anything that, that help with that? Yeah. All of the above. Right. I, I mean, they can be sort of conversations with yourself, reflections on it. Uh, I have at times in my career, I, you know, I'll take a, sheet of ledger paper and I'll do pros on one side and cons on the other and just use that as a thought mechanism for fleshing out where my head's at. Um, my wife is a, has been a professional partner all our careers. She also went to Berkeley and, and has had a career the entire time. So frequently, she's been a great partner to bounce things off of and express ideas to. Um, there certainly have been people that I've kept in touch with. You know, sometimes people you've worked with at past jobs who know you really well are great sounding boards for, you know, your current job if you don't work with them anymore because they know you, uh, but they don't know your situation. And you can kind of talk to them about the people, the personalities, the, the dynamics within a company. So I've, I have a, you know, decent list of people who I've, you know, I just periodically ping and we have coffee or lunch or whatever and catch up. I might have nothing. Sometimes they've been the one bouncing ideas off of me. Uh, and I think that's another important part of it is to kind of pay it forward. You know, you, you, any one of us can be helpful to other people in their careers in ways that you might not think. And that can even be eye opening for you when you're helping somebody else. It's like you're giving them advice and coaching and you can sometimes step back and realize like, Oh wait, you know, I, I've had some of the same thoughts or concerns or whatever it might be. So, um, you know, it, that's one of the really unique things about Silicon Valley and the tech industry more broadly is because there there are a lot of people who transition their careers, they move from company to company. There's 
it's kind of an ecosystem of workers who, you know, overlap at times and then they go different places and they might re-overlap again. And you kind of have this network uh, that, you know, transcends a particular business, a particular moment in time. Um, and in general, I have found people want to help each other. You know, I've been helped by a lot of people and I hope that I've helped a lot of people uh, in their career paths. So, so, you know, that is, and that's really unique to Silicon Valley. I think a lot of other industries, you know, you leave and you've burned bridges, you know, you are persona non grata to them. Um, that sentiment is pretty rare in, in tech, you know, maybe some of the ex Twitter folk felt that as they left, the, <laughs> left the building, but you know, for the most part, people leave on good terms because they know they're going to probably work with each other again. And I think that technology industry just it's the sign to come of of all the other industries. They just take longer to get there. But I don't want to understate how powerful that message is of of getting around other people to, to have the sounding boards and to prioritize it. Because a lot of times, especially like I own a couple companies, so you know, like meetings you know that have revenue attached to them or something become so important all the time. But you uh, have to really make it a priority to get around people that are interesting to you that have are doing different things because you also don't know you might even need them for the for your you know mental state but you don't know what's going to come out of those meetings sometimes too like yeah sometimes they're sharing some idea that they have and that they're thinking about doing and it might you know strike a nerve with you as well absolutely i mean i as i said almost every career move i've made has been partly deliberate, but partly serendipitous. You know, it's like I was sort of leaning into an area. I had some interest in a field and discover, you know, somebody I used to work with is at that company. And then, you know, you reach out to them and they, you know, so it's, it's, it's a lot of luck, you know, sometimes too, where your career goes to. And that's a good reason as always to kind of keep, keep those connections warm and reconnect with people you haven't talked to in a while. And, you know, post things to LinkedIn and whatever, whatever can catalyze those kind of serendipitous events. Absolutely. So let's pivot a little bit to uh, what you're doing now. I know we kind of, we won't go through the whole background because I also want to get to the book a bunch, but so it sounds like you're doing some investing You're you're getting really into AI. I think um, what's, I guess we could start with the AI stuff because it's so yeah. hot right now with the chat GPT and uh, everything that's going on, which is very exciting. Um, yeah. I guess, what are you excited about with AI? What are you working on anywhere where you want to take it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I've done, um, a couple AI related things. I, I was working with a company doing AI for recruiting, kind of HR recruiting, um, to identify candidates and, and, you know, follow up and communicate with those candidates. Um, in an automated way, I did worked with two AI focused investment funds in kind of a, you know, entrepreneur in residence type of role where I was inside the fund, basically, you know, working to kind of incubate an idea off the ground. Uh, one was also in the recruiting space and one was in the kind of the customer service support space. Um, you know, AI is a term that gets bandied about a lot. Uh, you know, there are a lot of marketers like me who are guilty of slapping that label on just about everything. I don't think there are any, you know, tech companies that wouldn't say that they're doing AI of some sort. Kind of like when the cloud came out, everything. Exactly. The cloud, the cloud, cloud. you know, and dot com. You know, we, we oh. certainly grab onto these phrases uh, that are hot and and we all want to be associated with with those sectors. You know, I have to say, and maybe this is just 
the 20 plus years of experience speaking, and I, I've got some amount of trepidation about the AI space um, from a couple standpoints. I think one is most of it really isn't AI, you know, and so I do think that there's a overhyping of the sector that is confusing to people, uh, diminishes the the innovation, frankly, that true AI products are doing. Um, so that's sort of one point of skepticism. Another one for me is, you know, this sort of, I think, misplaced belief that, you know, AI is sort of this magic, magical thing, right? I mean, it really is no different at some level. It's more advanced com computer processing, but AI needs an input, right? To, to make its decision-making, it needs data. Uh, and there's been a lot of people who've written about the risk of that, right? If you give it a bad data set, it's going to start making bad decisions. There have been some sort of infamously embarrassing incidents at Google and other companies. There's a great book. Right. I'm blanking on the name of the author, but the title is fantastic. It's Weapons of Math Destruction, M-A-T-H, um, that, that talks about how human biases creep into these AI algorithms, right? Because of the data that it's fed, because of um, you know, oftentimes the basic training mechanism is, you know, to AI to observe like, okay, here was the data, here was the decision that was made. Well, if that decision that was made is flawed, is biased to, by human, you know, mis misconceptions, then the AI is going to learn that misbehavior and reinforce it. So there's some very potentially negative consequences of, of that, obviously, uh, and, you know, the third area, I, I, I guess I would summarize it as a misplacement maybe of where AI, I think, could have the most impact on our lives. Um, and the way I sort of oversimplify this and use chat GPT as kind of a reference is, you know, the supply side versus the demand side. Um, do we really, you know... As a writer, I can already attest that there's already a lot of stuff that's written that nobody ever reads, right? So do we really need AI to generate more stuff that nobody reads? You know, there, there's a little bit of me that feels like the problem in modern society is less a production problem and more a consumption problem. Um, and, you know, one of the AI startups that I was working on, the one that I shut down during COVID was sort of focused on that. It was in the consumer customer support space. And our idea there at, at its core was to enable the consumer with AI technology rather than the business, right? So much of AI investment in the customer support space, for example, has been how can the business automate and apply AI to keeping its customers at arm's length? This was like, no, let's give that tool, that power to the consumer so that Instead of waiting for an hour on hold with, you know, Comcast to fix some issue, I can just tell this AI bot to go fix my internet or go mm -hmm. get me a refund or go, you know, process this return or whatever it might be. Um, and so that for me, I think I, that's where I sort of get excited. Again, more recently in my career, I've spent a lot on the consumer side. I think most people are kind of overwhelmed by modern society. There's too much choice. There's too many options. There's too much coming at me on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I can't really process it all. You know, help me be a more productive, efficient uh, person in the 21st century 
I, I that's where I feel like there's opportunity still in the AI space. Well, I think yeah, there's a lot there. I think um, we already have a problem with over information and whether we trust information right now more than yeah. probably. Uh, and I think especially with the the chat GPT stuff, like and I my company I have a marketing company and one of our services is SEO, and obviously SEO is going to be completely changed with AI right, and even right. if even if because the event you know you'll be able to catch it but then they'll be able to not catch it and they'll be able to catch it not catch it but it'll just you know I can turn out 40 documents now 40 pages in a minute it might not be good but where it used to take me a couple hundred dollars at least to, to yeah. uh, have somebody write it for me and that's going to be that's going to get really weird really wonky real quick and but I, I hope that fixes itself. It might be kind of like furniture where this is like handmade furniture. This is a handwritten document. But right, right. The way that I hope it turns out, which is so, sounds a little bit in your same area, is kind of like digging ditches. You know, we really don't need a bunch of people with shovels when we can have, you know, a big machinery or something come through and hope it gets rid of some of the mundane, rough data entry type of situations. Um yeah, I no, I think that's right. About it too. I, I think that it's going to change some jobs. And what do you think? So you've done the rec you had a recruiting business, or you're very, very big, very large part of recruiting business. Yeah, business. How do you think j AI will change our jobs? What's our our jobs future? Well, I mean, this is this is the story of technology back to like the cotton gin, right? I mean, the the every new technology innovation, you know, people worry about it you know, replacing humans and, uh, you know, obviating the need for certain jobs. And, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing about that sort of stuff. Uh, and some, at some level, AI is just the latest instantiation of that, right? And, and, you know, the economist in me looks at that and says, hey, the more productive we are as human beings, our standard of living increases, the types of jobs that we all have are, are more fulfilling, more rewarding. You know, there's certainly been a lot written about AI being perhaps unique in that legacy of technology innovations in, in, in terms of its broad applicability and its ability to not just replace sort of manual labor to your comparison of ditch digging, right? That's been a lot of the technology has replaced manual labor and really transitioning into, you know, uh, 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 brain labor, um, you know the so-called white collar jobs that require thought and analysis and things like that. Um, the AI's, AI's ability to disrupt those types of jobs is, is new, I, I think, in, in some ways. Although you could certainly argue computing has been doing that back to the, you know, uh, you know spreadsheet and, and word processor. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know. I think that yeah, so I I have sort of sit, set back, and in fact, this was this is a little segment in the book. One of the people that the protagonist interacts with describes as his investment thesis to invest in AI companies that are disrupting labor-intensive industries, right? And and in fact, that was one of my jobs was to sort of look at all these different sectors that are still heavily service-oriented. Um, you know, customer support, heavily service oriented, that, you know, the whole wave of offshoring that, uh, call centers and things like that. Um, you know, nursing heavily, you know, medical, medical healthcare, very services oriented business. 
So um, restaurants, you know, and, and hospitality, very service oriented business. And so those types of jobs, I think, are, are the next ones that really are going to be affected where um, there's the ability of AI to sort of replace the human intensive, you know, uh, still thoughtful jobs, right? They're not quite manual labor to be a call center agent, but there is sort of a right way to do it. There is typical information. There's patterns of inquiries and and stuff that can be really discerned in that space. And, and there's a huge labor savings to be had um, if you can uh, do that effectively. And, and I think, you know, we're seeing a change on the consumer side too. People are increasingly willing, if not even prefer to interact with a chat bot versus a real human, because frankly, it's faster. It's pretty good at resolving their issues. Um, so, you know, there's a, broad spectrum of things where this technology will impact people's lives uh, and uh, on the flip side will be tremendous opportunities for entrepreneurs who who nail it. Well, and I'm an optimist. So my hope is that frees up some of the grind so you can focus more of your life on creative ideas and aspirations, but we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes. I think it'll get there with some heavy downsides as well, but I think overall it'll probably be much better. But let's pivot to the book because you, you kind of already kind of gave a, a perfect segue there. So uh, just a quick synopsis. Uh, so basically you have this tech executive, comes to the valley. He wants to make the world a better place. And then he basically gets jaded a little bit. Some stuff happens, it sounds like. And um, he has to go through a whole, I'm sure all these trials and tribulations to, to make the book work. But why fiction is my first question. Why, why, yeah. why a story versus like um, a business, a normal business book? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, it really was sort of the, well, it's two things that I've already touched on in our conversation. One was that was kind of my interest, right? I, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't appeal to me to write a tell all memoir. I didn't feel like, you know, even though I've had ups and downs and, you know, they're probably interesting to somebody who's starting their career in tech. I just, I haven't lived through a sort of Theranos style scandalous thing where, I, you know, it was going to be a, a bestseller based on, you know, my real world experiences. Um, and you're absolutely right. The entrepreneur in me sort of looked at the marketplace of books and I basically said, boy, there's a ton of nonfiction books. There's business books and management books and memoirs and biographies and you name it. There's a ton of media coverage about Silicon Valley and the tech industry. Where are all the novels? You know, like there, there just was a paucity of, you know, fiction literature out there. Um, you know, I'd call out to, I think, Dave Eggers, who's a Bay Area author. He, he wrote The Circle and The Every, uh, both sort of based on tech, kind of a critique of the tech industry. But he isn't from the tech industry. You know, he didn't spend his career in it. Um, and so for me, I just didn't feel like there was anything that kind of authentically, you know, explored what it was like to work in this sector, what impact technologies had on our lives, et cetera, from a fiction standpoint. So now there's a lot of real world experiences that, you know, influence the book. I mean, the character is not dissimilar to myself, a C-level executive at a startup company. I spent a lot of my career doing that. Uh, 
like Sam, my protagonist, I came to Silicon Valley in the dot-com boom. So did he uh, from the Midwest. Uh, we share a similar sort of idealism about, you know, as you said, making the world a better place. And I think that was really, in many ways, the promise of the tech industry early on was, you know, you can, you can, you can make a ton of money, but not be bad for the world. You know, you, you can do good things and really improve people's lives. And I think that bloom has kind of fallen off the rose a little bit in the last um, several years. I, I, I sort of looked at like 2015, 2016 as a bit of a turning point when you started hearing the term big tech thrown around. You know, you looked around and the biggest companies in the world were all tech companies that, that had and still have a sort of disproportionate influence on our lives. If you look at Apple and Amazon and, uh, you know, Facebook and Google, it, it, it is almost impossible to live modern life without using these companies' products and the, the compromises that we make as consumers by using them, the data that's shared, et cetera, about us. Um, so I think the timing was right for a critique of tech. I think having lived here in the Bay Area for a long time, I've seen firsthand some of the excesses of that, of... of uh, you know, from wealth inequality and gentrification to, you know, in many cases, and this was a banner year for it, outright fraudulent action and behavior on the behalf of executives and, and investors. And that's really what the book explores is in a, in a single word, what it is about is ambition. Uh, and so the main character is an executive at this startup company that has a degree of momentum. Um, and to make a long story, you know, a 300 page story short, he sort of discovers potential fraud within the organization. And it really becomes a moral dilemma about, you know, what is he going to do about that? And, and I think there is a very real, very wide gray area there. You know, he, oh, sorry. Um, he explores or he, he wrestles with those pros and cons I talked about before, you know, that the, there, when he first sort of starts to pull the thread, you know, you might say, well, gosh, he should blow the whistle on this and everything else. But the flip side is, well, he'd be shutting the company down and laying off 200 some employees, right? There's, there's bad things on both sides of that ledger. And um, I think that is life in startups. You know, people are always put in a position of kind of struggling with what is the right thing to do here? It's not always so slam dunk obvious. Um, and that can itself lead to rationalization of bad behavior, sort of um, justifying to yourself why what you're doing maybe isn't as bad as it really would appear on the outside. And there's especially a bit of a slippery when you have, especially when you have that monetary, like you literally, if he if he goes and does, you know, exposes it all. He probably is going to be dead broke or close to Correct. it, right? Correct. And, 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 and I think, flush I think his that's where. Yeah, yeah. And then you're and you're yeah. You don't have a way to make it back up. And I think that's where the rubber meets the road for a lot of people. Is yeah, would you you'd want to do the right thing, but would you actually if it really affected you? I think that I mean that one of the big messages of the book is that the prevalent structure of Silicon Valley startups, venture-backed Silicon Valley startups, um, frankly, enables at least and encourages at worst that kind of behavior. You know, in most tech startups, you don't really have independent fiduciary oversight in your board, right? You have 
venture investors who have a deeply, deeply aligned, even more so than the founders in, in cases, incentive for that company to be successful. So they, you know, they, the investors are less the traditional board role of being that, you know, oversight to the executives and, and, um, and, and represent the shareholders. It's all insiders who are the shareholders when you're an early stage company. So the incentives, yes, are aligned, but that can create sort of misalignment to more sort of global good and ethical behavior, right? If, if somebody is prone to that in the first place, um, the lack of oversight and shadows of a tech startup, um, you know, can, can provide the cover to misbehave and in some cases for a very, very long period of time. And unfortunately, as we've seen with, you know, Theranos and Uber and FTX and, you know, Zenefits and, you know, a lot of other companies, it tends to happen the most in the most hyped companies. You know, when there's a lot of hype and a lot of FOMO and investors are piling in and writing big checks and, and desperate to get in, they'll oftentimes skirt the due diligence or piggyback on it or assume somebody else has done it. And, you know, that's when you can really get over your skis and, and, you know, all of a sudden when that pops, it can be a disaster. Now, a lot of that popping is happening in private, you know, big difference between now and the dot-com boom, dot-com boom, the liquidity event for those venture investors was to go public. And so when the sort of discovery happened that the revenue wasn't doing what it was supposed to be doing, or there were internal, uh, concerns, you know, they were subject to public disclosure requirements and those things blew up in the public face and had public shareholders who lost, you know, lost all their investments in those companies. You know, now that's largely happening in private, right? So the massive influx of private equity has enabled, you know, these, I think it's 1500 or so, maybe more unicorn companies, you know, in the nineties, there weren't companies that have had a billion dollar plus valuation that were still private. They all went public, right? That's why that term was coined because it was so unusual and so rare. Now, clearly there's a period of time that companies can go into where they don't want to have the financial disclosures that SEC, FTC would require of a public company. They want to still be undercover at night. There's plenty of capital for, for them to uh, get liquidity themselves. Uh, and the venture investors can sort of sell up the uh, up the chain to private equity, hedge funds, et cetera. And I don't know that that's the healthiest dynamic. I think it prevents these companies that probably should have a uh, public market type of scrutiny on them, uh, you know, still staying private. And, and we're, you know, I think that's why it's happening now is as that market has retrenched, um, all those, all that capital is kind of pulling back. Um, the scrutiny that those investors are making of these companies is increasing, is intensifying. And so I think it's a healthy thing for the tech economy overall that, you know, some of the, the dead wood is getting sh shook out of the system, if you will. Yeah, it almost feels like the market dynamics helps itself there a little bit when it gets a little bit out, out of balance. Let's yeah. about actually writing the book. So you did say that during COVID, you, you, the funding wasn't there, so you, so you actually had some time to write a book that you wanted to. But actually, how did that happen? Did you like yeah. schedule time in the morning? Like, so the reason why I'm asking is I have been taking 
basically all these podcasts I've done and taken everybody's answers and distilled it down into categories of how to get funding, how to how to scale your company, how to uh, exit, how to recreate it, how to you know kind of uh, live a good balanced life, or I wouldn't actually balance life, but a, a a life that has a lot of that you get a lot done with it, you know. And I struggle with I get a lot done, and then I then it sits for a month, you know. So any advice, tips, tricks, wherever you want to take it, of actually writing a book. Yeah, I well, I started it as many authors do as a nights and weekends hobby, right? I, I had written, I don't know, a couple hundred, a hundred, 150 pages um, in that mode. And I was really enjoying it. And it was a fun outlet for me, you know, instead of writing t watching TV, I'd, you know, I, I, write, write the book. Um, and I think the, I mentioned, you know, the learning curve of publishing and being an author for me, the more I learned about it, the more I realized how hard that was going to be, right? That there, that, you know, I think a, an easy misconception is, oh, I'll write it and it'll be great and it'll get out there and everything else. You know, actually writing it is, I would ballpark now that I've done it, about 10% of the total effort of getting a book out into the market. Um, you have to edit it, you have to design it, you have to you know, publish it, promote it. It's a whole long process. And with, you know, literally millions of books coming into the world every year with self-publishing and other mechanisms, you know, it, it'll be a drop in the ocean um, of what's out there. Back to my point about, you know, just a lot of content. And so to be a successful author requires, you know, much more than just writing it. And so I think that was sort of aha number one for me is I don't, I don't know that this will ever get to where I want it to go if I don't really put a shoulder into it and, and do it full time. Sounds like launching a company, you know, you launch your product you think, oh, I'll put it out there. It's so good. But that's only 10% of a startup. Yeah, 100%. I, I actually did a guest column up on this exact topic. The headline is how being an entrepreneur taught me to be a, an author, right? I think many authors got it, get into it because they love to write and that's the part they enjoy and they don't really like the promotion, the publicity, you know, everything else that is required to make a book successful. But a book is in effect, just like a product and, and a brand, your author brand is, is like a product brand. Um, you need collaborators, you need other people who bring expertise that you do not have and, and should not try to you, do. Um, and so takes a lot of people rowing in the same direction. Um, you as the author need to be the biggest champion. It's not going to be someone else. It's not going to be a publisher. It's not going to be a publicist. Um, those people compliment you rather than, than pull you along. Um, and so I think, you know, my times as an entrepreneur, I, when I first got into it, I thought I am doing a 180 degree pivot. This is completely different than anything else I've ever done. And as I got into it, I was like, no, this is exactly the same thing. Uh, and you know, it just sort of is in a different market. You know, it's a, it's a, a book instead of, a you know, a bunch of code. And, you know, I'm sure the, uh, it's kind of a lonely venture, just like entrepreneurship is. Yeah. Uh, any advice there to deal with that? Cause I, I know a lot of people kind of go through those, you know, troughs of sorrow being an entrepreneur Any anything that's worked for you during your career or during your authorship that kind of kept you going, kept, kept kept you charging forward? 
that is very true. I mean, it is a lonely endeavor oftentimes. You know, there are moments where you you do work with a team and you're collaborating with other people, but not the way you are really at a business. And you're precisely right, very much like an early, early, early stage startup. You know, I remember when I founded my first company, people would be like, oh, are you, you must be crazy. And I'm like, actually, no. Like, if I don't show up to the work today, nothing gets done. You know, all the momentum is momentum that you generate, that you create. You know, you have to be constantly hustling. Um, and the same is true as an author, you know, there's just too much out there to get noticed, you know, unless you're the one out there pitching it. So, so, you know, for me, that's, that's been, uh, the part that frankly, I, I've really enjoyed the most. My goal in writing this book in the first place was, you know, not to become a, 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 uh, you know, make money off of it. I don't know if that's even possible in publishing anymore. The goal was really to influence the conversation, and it's been great to do interviews, to do book groups, to do. Um, I've done a, events at you know dozens of different bookstores all around the country. Those discussions are fascinating because you know the book was meant to be a cultural critique of the tech industry and more broadly, kind of uh, contemporary culture overall. And um, it's been great to kind of engage in those discussions and see it be thought provoking for people, which is what I really intended. Yeah, it's wonderful that you get a part of those communities. I also something that you said there that triggered something in my mind, like the the best and worst things about being an entrepreneur is nobody tells you what to do. Right. <laughs> you love right. it. You also hate that because you have to every day you have to it, it's all on you. Um yeah. real quick though, so I want to pivot to kind of a little bit a couple I wouldn't quite maybe personal questions, but like Let's take you back all the way when you were working for a U.S. senator. What yeah. advice would you have given yourself back then? Now that you've gone through all these different, uh, you know, different careers, really. I, you know, I, I pursue your passions and and enjoy the process, not the outcome. You know, I, I think that this is another theme of the book and something that I was kind of going through in my career at that point. Um, you know, I've had some decent successes in terms of the companies I've started. I've had some heartbreaking failures where I've shut them down and laid people off. Um, and, you know, Silicon Valley and the tech industry in general is populated by, you know, type A people who are driven to succeed and are very, you know, frankly, achievement oriented. I think that's what my mindset was. It was like my my worth is hitched on, you know, how, how many millions of dollars I can make uh, as sort of a method of keeping score, if you will. And I think I, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs, and I feel like I was this way myself early in my career, right, where I lost sight a little bit. I let that desire for achievement uh, and, and esteem sort of overshadow my enjoyment of the job on a day-to-day -day basis, right? And I think you really got, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but you got to enjoy the journey, not just, just the destination. You know, if you're only focused on that outcome, only focused on that exit, um, you know, candidly, if you look at the numbers, the odds are infinitesimally small that you're going to have a, 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 a Facebook size, you know, exit with your startup company. And so you better like it. You better enjoy the space you're in. You better be doing it in a sustainable way both like emotionally and financially, right? I, th I think a lot of 
entre young entre entrepreneurs, they just, they, they over invest in their dream. Right. And I know that it's contrary to what you hear, like what you hear over and over again is you got to just sell out nights and weekends. You got to be totally committed to it. Um, but you know, it is easy to end a startup. Uh, I did a, a gaming startup once that, you know, was bootstrapped and, and I raised some angel money, but a lot of the capital in it was, was mine. It was sort of a, a, a something I thought was fantastic, a dream opportunity. And I just was spent a little bit emotionally spent at the end of it. Right. Because it was my personal identity was so tied up in this business and its success. And when it ultimately didn't succeed, you know, I had a, I had a hole in my pocketbook and I had a hole in my ego. Um, and so I think that's sort of what I advise, uh, or, you know, would tell my younger self or tell people starting out now is, is try to do it in a sustainable way. And I think that term is going to be a little bit different, what that means for everybody, you know, financially sustainable, emotionally sustainable, um, enjoyment sustainable, but, uh, you know, that is the key because otherwise I I've seen a lot of people get, you know, extremely discouraged, depressed, et cetera, by the harsh realities of startup life. Well, I think just like anything you got, you know, you can't just have, I always call them like pillars or you could call them like legs to a stool. If you only have one pillar in your life that everything's in, if you lose that, if, if that's a relationship or is that, if that's your job or whatever it will be, if that goes south, then you don't have any other legs to stand on. Right, so right. I think you got to kind of insulate yourself with not just everything poured into one thing. It's very di difficult to do, though. Uh, a side question on that is, you know, how did you pick yourself back up off after the, the gaming company? Like, how did you decide to do the next thing? Yeah, I think that would be my other, that leads to another piece of advice, which is it's the people, you know, I really having a strong set of people, both in your personal life and in your professional life that you can rely on, you know, in that case, I reconnected with a guy I knew and he needed something and, you know, it ended up being a great next job for me. And it, it was a way to kind of dust myself off, uh, somebody who knew me and trusted me already. Um, and, you know, I think I've, done a reasonably good job over my career of maintaining and nurturing those relationships because, you know, you kind of never know when you're going to need them or you never know when they're going to resurface. Right. Like, um, uh, and so I've always really tried to do unto others as I, you know, have them do unto me. I mean, there's, there's a lot of golden rule, I think in this space, I think that you never know what connection someone's going to have. If you have an opportunity down the line to take an investor or hire an employee or whatever it might be, you know, and, it, and there's somebody out there who you've burned bridges with, they're probably going to find that, you know, I mean, that, that those can be warning signs if you do the opposite of nurture those relationships, if you take them for granted or you exploit them. Um, so I think people is critical. I think those are the moments when, I, when I've had those kind of personal failures or setbacks or professional failures, um, you know, that's been sort of what I've turned to is reconnected with people, gotten advice, sat down for coffee, talked about, you know, done the, the debrief about, Hey, why, why did it, why didn't it work out the way I thought it would? Um, those are, those are therapeutic conversations to have. And, um, you know, oftentimes can lead you to the next thing and that you, that you're going to end up pursuing. 
is my last question. I end every podcast with this question. It's how would you like to be remembered? Oh, you know, I think I've tried to think about and worry about that question less than I used to. You know, I, I think that early in my career, I had a lot, I, I put a lot of emphasis on that. That was associated with, you know, achievement and outcomes and, and all that sort of stuff. It was like, I want to leave a legacy. I want to have something that lasts beyond me. Um, you know, I think now as I get older and further in my career and have gone through this transition, I think about that. I frame that question in a completely different way. It's, it's not about achievement. It's about relationships. It's about, you know, family. It's about things that give me personal satisfaction versus, you know, kind of external um, measurements of achievement, of success, whatever it might be. And that's hard to do. I mean, it's really hard to do, especially in an environment like Silicon Valley, where everything you hear, everything you read is all oriented towards that sort of achievement metric and legacy metric and everything else. And um, it's hard to stop listening to that voice and, and really listen to your own gut, your own personal feelings about stuff. You know, now I, I, I don't want to be unrealistic. You know, I, you have to support yourself financially. I've, I'm in the good fortune of being able to pursue something that I love in writing that isn't financially lucrative because my wife still works and, and uh, that gives me the flexibility to do that. So, you know, not everybody's fortunate enough to be in that position. You know, you got to sometimes suck it up and do things to earn money and, and whatnot. Um, but, you know, it's really, um, don't worry about your legacy so much, you know, uh, let yourself be satisfied with what you have people who are important to you um, because, you know, when you're on your deathbed, those are the things that are going to matter, not the money in your checkbook. Well, Mike, it was a huge pleasure to have you on the Establishing Your Empire podcast. I think there's there were so many different areas that you talked about that really, um, I'm kind of in the perfect spot for these to really resonate with. So I think this was a really wonderful episode and I really appreciate your time and, and being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It was a great conversation. I agree.